If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Rob Attar, the magazine's editor. Today's interview is with Professor Susan Westhazen, whose new book, The Emergence of the English, sets out bold new arguments about the people we call the Anglo-Saxons. Our content director, David Musgrove, paid a visit to her in Cambridge recently to find out more. So, Susan, uh, you're looking in this book to uh, explain how the English came to be, came to emerge at some point around 600 or so uh, AD or CE, um, which is uh, something of a, a, a vexed question. Um, and your book is um, reasonably provocative, I, I suppose, in terms of, of, of what it talks about. The context is 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 the English people arrive, uh, or at least the, the idea of the English people arriving in the post-Roman period after the Roman uh, occupation, um, and uh, and somehow they appear and become and, and become a thing uh, a couple of centuries or so after the Romans have left. Is that the that's the basic traditional narrative? But perhaps you could sketch that out a bit more and say uh, and say how the how the story traditionally goes. The story traditionally goes that Rome withdrew its administration from Britain around about 400 AD. And at that point, everything went to hell in a handcart. Economy collapsed, cities fell into, into ruin, the villa owners all had to move out because there's nobody to maintain their houses anymore, crops rotted in the, in the, in the fields, and so on. And it was just a general complete disaster. 
Um, and but but shortly within a, a matter of perhaps a, a decade or perhaps even less, traditionally it is said that large numbers or sufficient numbers of immigrants arrived from Northwest Europe, um, most commonly said to be in northern what would today be northern Holland or uh, parts of uh, northern Germany, um, and that they were able to take control. And from that then emerged a new language, new customs, new ways of running political organizations, which eventually flourished as the idea of the English nation under the, you know, the unrated, for example, King Alfred. So my husband's got a great, a great story about this. He says, the Romans left, disaster. The Anglo-Saxons arrive, salvation. So that is the conventional story. And you have some issues with that. Well, I do. I mean, you know, I was brought up, I can tell I'm foreign, I'm South African. So I don't live in the British class system. And I was brought up to think that a cat could look at a king. But given that a cat can look at a king, I just want to know what is the proof. None of us actually knows what happened in the past. So all we have to go on is evidence. The evidence has to be as solid as possible, otherwise we're just making up fairy stories. As my career progressed, the more I looked at what the sources actually said, what the archeological evidence actually said, what people in other disciplines actually said, the more convinced I became that actually the evidential base, the amount of evidence there is for the traditional story was either weak or non-existent. So, well, a cat may look at a king. So I spent some time really going into each one of those areas to try to convince myself, actually, that the Anglo-Saxons actually existed. And the more I went into it, the less certain I became that that was actually what had happened, that there's actually no evidence for an influx of immigrants from Northwest Europe, and there isn't any evidence that they took over an existing or a broken existing political and social establishment. So I read a book about it. Okay, so that's that's a, a fairly um, a fairly punchy thing to say for for many academics, I, I, I would imagine. Um, can we we'll, we'll drill into it a, a bit, but can we just go um, go back into it? when did we first hear talk of the English as a as a as a, as a people? When are they first referenced? Well, the first time they're really referenced in that way, as they call the Angli, is in the late 6th century. So um, the Vatican, well, not that time, the Pope refers to them as the Angli. There are some um, continental writers who refer to the Angli. And then by the time you get to 600 AD, people are the kings of, of uh, Kent already writing laws in English. So by 600 AD, people were really referring to those peoples who lived in what we would now call England as Angli, even though they were subdivided between any number of political units, and they're already referring to their language as English. How did that happen? Who knows? But I don't think it happened as a consequence of immigration from Northwest Europe. And what about um, the, the term Anglo-Saxons? How does that fit in with the English? When does that start to appear? And is that is that a relevant part of the story? Well, that happens quite a lot later in the ninth century from continental authors. 
who were trying to, to make a distinction between people speaking a Germanic language, English, in England, and people speaking Germanic languages, different but related, in continental Europe. And so they refer to the English Saxons as opposed to the Saxons living in, on the continent. And so that's when it appears in the ninth century. It's a name applied to the people of England rather than a name that they came up with themselves. Okay. And um, you, one of the things you do in your book is you sort of challenge the, um, the time scale, the existing, the, the way the, the, uh, the period is structured. Yes. Um, and you suggest that the, the, the talk of the early Anglo-Saxon period, the middle Anglo-Saxon period and late Anglo-Saxon period isn't a very helpful way of looking at things. Do you want to expand on that? Well, it's, yes. It, it really, the problem I have isn't with early, middle and late. The problem I have is with calling it Anglo-Saxon. Because most of the people living in post-Roman England were descended from Romano-British people, whose, many of whose ancestors had lived here in prehistory. So you're looking at a largely local set of communities. If you call them Anglo-Saxons, they're not Anglo-Saxons, they're late Romano-Brits. So if you call them Anglo-Saxons, you're calling them something that they're not. You're calling apples pears and expecting everybody to kind of think that's okay, although you're including apples within apples, you're also including pears, and that's just a nonsense. So, so that's one argument. And the second is that if you call something Anglo-Saxon, for example, when you excavate, and we found an Anglo-Saxon site, you might say. Mm. So you find your Anglo-Saxon site, that immediately limits how you're going to interpret it, because you not then able to say, well, these are uh, late Romano-British communities amongst whom others are living. You're more likely to say we found Anglo-Saxons in an Anglo-Saxon community using Anglo-Saxon stuff. And so you're already predicating the answer. You're expecting an answer that is going to be we found the Anglo-Saxons by calling them Anglo-Saxons before you've even done the analysis. So I just think we should stop calling them Anglo-Saxons, stop calling that period Anglo-Saxon England and find some other language. I don't terribly mind what it is, but I think we need to find some more neutral way of describing that period that allows us to develop more interesting explanations of how the English emerged around the middle of that period. Mm, okay, so so we, we throw out the, 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 the speaking about the Anglo-Saxons and we come up with things like you've got early antique and early, midi, early medieval and, and phrases like that, yes. so, which are a bit more neutral, I suppose. Exactly. Okay. And is there any, um, any evidence or suggestion that any of these people ever referred to themselves as Anglo-Saxons? Um, you know, by the time you're getting into that period, that you're, you're looking at the later ninth century. So, no, there's no evidence of the, the first use of that term is definitely from outside England. It's from Francia, yeah. from what's now France. Um, and so, um, no, there's no evidence that people refer to them in that, themselves in that way, perhaps until in the, the later Anglo-Saxon period. But at that point, when the English are emerging, they don't call themselves Anglo-Saxon, definitely not. So one of the things that, that, that would be... Uh, amazing to understand is to is to think how these people actually did yes. um, express themselves, what they did say about themselves, how they felt about themselves. Have you have you got any any thoughts on that? Well, you see, there's two answers to that. 
One answer is on a large scale. So everybody who lives in England, how did they refer to themselves? We don't know, except that they called their language English. And so perhaps they also called themselves English, Angli. But we don't know. What we do know are the names that people gave themselves within their local political organisation. So people lived within territories which had governance and all the things that political units usually have. And we know quite a lot about the names that people gave themselves within or gave to their territories. And those names are almost exclusively related to the local landscape. So, for example, Finland's the area that I know the best, but they give themselves names which they were the people of the marsh or they were the people of the river. The men of Kent. Kent is a prehistoric name hmm. which was adopted by the Romans and then persists into what people popularly call the Anglo-Saxon period. So that was already a very old name by the time you got to 600. But they call themselves the men of Kent. Yeah. So people refer to themselves in terms of their local landscapes, their local communities, rather than in terms of, you know, we came from Saxony or we arrived from Frisia. Yeah, okay. And, and the Somerset as well is a, is a good example of that, isn't it? So so, so people are defining yes. themselves by their landscape. Yes. We'll come back to that because that's yes. that's a very interesting point. Um, so um, so you've, you've sort of challenged quite a few of the evidential points that people are used to, to, to yeah. talk about this period. So should we, should we go through mm-hmm. um, a few of those? So the, the documentary sources, mm-hmm. you're, you're not convinced that they are particularly useful in in helping us to understand this point? No. Uh, There are four principal sources. Three of them are from Britain, so they're traditionally called insular sources. They're from the island, and one is from Gaul. So the three from Britain are the Memoirs of St. Patrick, uh, the Diatribes of Gildas, so, so I should start, go back a bit and say that uh, St. Patrick died around about the middle of the 5th century, so the 450s, 460s. Can't remember the date offhand. Uh, then there's Gildas, who's a priest, a monk, writing at some time, nobody actually knows when, but they mostly assume early 6th century. And then there is the Venerable Bede, who wrote his History of the English Church in about 713. So those are three local sources. And then uh, a uh, Gaulish bishop, St. Germanus, came to visit Britain in the 430s and 440s. And so then there are records of his, uh, of his journey and what he found when he came here. So those are the sources that we have. So do you want to ask a question now and then do you, or do you, shall I just just, just, just go for it. Tell, tell, us, tell, us, tell us why we, why we shouldn't uh, necessarily trust those sources. Right. Well, um, the, the question really was that I had when I read the, the question I had when I read those sources was, does any one of those documentary sources give us absolutely firm evidence that the Anglo-Saxons ever arrived? And the answer is no, they don't. So St. Patrick uh, Came, appears, it appears that St. Patrick came from northwest Britain, which is a pretty remote part of the world even today. I hope people won't mind my saying that. Um, but he doesn't refer in any way to, to, to uh, battles from Saxons. He refers to incursions from the north, from what is now Scotland, 
and from across the Irish Sea, but he doesn't talk about Saxons. And everything that he speaks about is about a settled world. His father owns a villa. His father's a local, involved in local government. He's a leading member of the local church. They speak some form of vernacular Latin at home. This is a late Romano-British community and family. There's nothing in there. The next is Gildas. Uh, Gildas wrote these diatribes in which he really wanted to show his listeners that Britain was really going to the dogs and only a return to the ways of God was going to save them. So he uses his material in several, he doesn't just use it once, so it's not a single narrative from beginning to end. It's a series of, well, I've used, I know I might have used the story before, but it's a jolly good story, so I'll use it again, a bit like that. Um, and Gildas does say, uh, there, there are some phrases in Gildas which have traditionally been interpreted as, um, as evidence for the arrival of the Anglo-Saxons. But there's quite a lot of recent scholarship now which has looked more carefully at the Latin words that he used, he wrote in Latin. So what were the words that he used? How might they be interpreted? And generally speaking, the consensus now is that the people that Gildas was talking about were mercenaries who were brought in or auxiliary troops brought in by late Romano-British townsmen to help to guard their towns and that when they had ceased to have a, a usefulness, they went back across the channel. They didn't stay. So Gildas is no longer useful. Bede was writing in 713, so the, the immigration period is supposed to be between 400 and 600. So Bede is talking in 713, over a century later, and all his material is based either on Gildas or on the praise songs for the early kings. And once more, there are a number of scholars who've gone through those sources very carefully, and they all agree that Bede had absolutely nothing to add to Gildas, that he, there was no additional evidence for the arrival of Anglo-Saxons uh, in Bede than there had been in Gildas, and therefore Bede doesn't offer us anything extra. So those are the three insular sources. And then the last one are these two journeys, Bas and Germanos, to Britain in, I can't remember, the four cities or so. And um, that's very interesting. He, does, he says this is a very stable society. They do have some problems with raiders, but most of those raiders are coming from the north and across the Irish Sea, which, by the way, is actually what Gildas says too. If you go and count the number of battles and times of turmoil that Gildas mentions, you look at who's causing the trouble. They're always the Picts or the Scots, so the Picts were people from Scotland, and the Scots are people from Ireland, which is very confusing. But um, yeah, so, so uh, Germanus says that we, they do have these occasional troubles with by and large in a very stable society. It's quite prosperous. Um, the law, legal system was still working. The governance system was still working. The church was still working. All the institutions that give our society a framework within which we all live, a set of rules in one context or another, all those all those were still working. They might be working in a slightly different way than they had worked under Rome, but they were they were evolving and working into well into the, you know, the early to mid fifth century. There's just no evidence for the Anglo-Saxons at all, documentary at least. Okay, so so you don't see them in that part of the of the evidential base. Uh, material culture is, is in a way that archaeologists will 
we'll, we'll talk of the Anglo-Saxon, and you've already yes. said that you think that's, you know, the, the, the way the, the, the period is defined sort of skews perhaps the way the archaeologists look at it. So, so what's the problem with the material culture? Okay, so the material culture is a kind of archaeological word phrase for describing the stuff that people used. So, but not only the pots and pans and the jugs and the glasses and the bed linen and all of that, but also the houses and all aspects of, of, of artefacts, really, things that people make to, to be useful. Well, the thing is about the material culture, and again, archaeologists are well aware of this, is that it's, there, there, there is, it's uniform across the period. No, no, that's not true. So it's not, it's, it, it does evolve across the period, but it's a single material culture. So now if one had seen immigrant communities coming in uh, and retaining some form of ethnic identity, then one might say perhaps you would then expect to see a contrast between those groups and people who had you know, the late Romano Brits who were still using late Romano British stuff. But actually, that isn't what one sees. What one sees is everybody using the same stuff from about you know, 410 and then increasingly as one gets into the 5th century, so about 50, everybody's using the same stuff. So you can't tell from the stuff that people are using, from the way that they're buried, from any aspect of the archaeology, whether they were Romano-British, whether they came from anywhere else in Europe or further afield, or whether, in fact, they were, in inverted commas, Anglo-Saxons. They're indistinguishable. So that's one problem. And another problem is that um, there is an assumption that uh, the Anglo-Saxons only used Anglo-Saxon stuff. And when one looks at what happens to immigrants in immigrant communities, and I'm an immigrant myself, and by and large, we assimilate. We use the stuff in the places where we end up. Apart from anything else, you know, if I wanted to live on South African goods, it would be blindingly expensive. I'd never be able to do it. I mean, it would just not be a proposition unless perhaps I were a millionaire. And actually, what use would that be to me? Because I need to get on with my neighbours. I need to have a job. You know, I've got family here now. I'm married. I've got children. I need to integrate. I need to be part of where I am. And I think that, you know, most the research shows that that is how most immigrants live. So the idea that you can distinguish immigrants by the stuff they used is difficult. And one of my favorite analogies is um, when one looks at the research, um, particularly the early research, but there's still research of that kind today, uh, it tends to show a map of England with the major rivers because as everyone knows, and I'll come back to what everyone knows, uh, as everyone knows, the Anglo-Saxons came up the rivers. So it shows the rivers, and then it shows the fine spots of what are called early Anglo-Saxon things. So there might be brooches or swords or pots or burials or, or whatever. The trouble with that is that you could do an equivalent map which shows all the IKEA stores in Britain as they are today because everybody in Britain, almost everyone, has got something from Ikea. It's almost a universal form of material culture. I mean, I bet you even the Queen has got something from Ikea in one of her palaces somewhere. So 
How, if we, if all documentary evidence for our own period disappeared, there was nothing left. And in 2,000 years' time, the archaeologists dug up the IKEA stores, what would they find? Well, they'd find a concentration of Swedish stuff, because that would be the store. And then as one went further and further away from the store, the concentration of Swedish goods would get smaller because obviously the nearer you are to the store, the easier it is to get hold of the stuff. And so they could then interpret the history of Britain in the late 20th and early 21st century as the colonization of Britain by Swedes. But actually you and I know very well that this is simply just evidence of trade. And so we don't actually know what the material culture of the fifth and sixth century means in terms of immigration, if in fact it means anything. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, but we don't know. The assumption that it does therefore prove immigration doesn't stand. Or if it does, it needs a lot more proof. Another source that you, you sort of challenge is, is DNA studies and, and, and genetics, how far that can help us to understand this picture. So go for it. Okay, well, now the genetics are very interesting. And a few years, must be about, oh, I don't know, three or four years ago now, there was a massive study of DNA across Britain and uh, Northwest Europe, um, France, Denmark, Germany, Holland, and so on, um, which purported to show that um, the Anglo-Saxons had definitely arrived and a particular proportion of British DNA was descended from them. So that was quite interesting. So um, the paper is available free online, so anybody can download it um, and read it. The bit that people need to go and look at is the middle, is the section called methods or methodological section, something like that. It's about the methods they used. Um, for, for most people, I mean, I speak for myself really, and really I shouldn't say for most people, but I, you know, the technicalities of DNA are, are not my strength. But what I noticed was that they said, well, when we came to look at British DNA, we found that actually a very large proportion of it was French. But the French weren't mentioned in Gildas and Bede, and therefore we left that evidence out. At that point, I thought, well, no, excuse me, but how can you do that? The evidence is the evidence. You can't say, well, Gildas and Bede didn't say, say anything about them, therefore it we're not going to include them. You have to include them. If it's there, you have to include it. So tell us about this, you know, tell us the answer, but don't, don't fiddle about, but don't skew the answer to, so that it's something what you want it to be. Tell us, it is, tell us the answer as it is, not what you think it should be. So that's one argument about the DNA. Another is that uh, there's quite an interesting bit of research being done in Iceland so in Iceland, apparently, everybody has a map, uh, uh, an app on their phone because the original population was so small that it's very easy to be related to somebody else. So everybody in Iceland has this app, which then they can see how closely related they are to somebody before they start going out with them so that they don't then end up marrying somebody who's too close to them genetically. Right. So in Iceland, what they have found is if you take the modern DNA map of Iceland and then you try to you take it back in exactly the same way as was done for Britain you you trace it back to the original founding fathers of Iceland in the ninth century what do you find 
But actually what you find is that only half the DNA of 9th century Iceland is represented in the modern population. So 50% is missing. So as a way of moving from the present, reconstructing the DNA of the past from present DNA looks pretty flawed. And then finally, there's a new technique now, which is called um, isotope analysis. And that is uh, when people are brought up, the water that they drink, uh, a signature of the, the oxygen in the water that they drink is retained in their dental enamel. So people can tell from your dental your dental enamel where you were, where you grew up. So more recently, people have been exploring the dental enamel of of individuals who are buried in Anglo-Saxon cemeteries. What do they find? They find most people are born in Britain. Quite a lot of people are born locally. Others are born in other parts of Britain, but most people come from Britain. What about the others? Where do they come from? Some of them come from the Mediterranean, some from Northwest Africa, some North Africa, some from the Eastern Mediterranean, some from Central Europe, and some come from Northern Europe. They come from all over, but there's no evidence for an invasion or even a large-scale settlement from Northwest Europe. And when you look at the goods that those people are buried with, if you didn't know the differences because of their dental in their dental enamel, you would not be able to tell the differences from one group, from one person to another. You wouldn't be able to tell from the way that they were buried or the things that they were buried with who was an immigrant and who was brought up locally. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Nobody knows what happened in the past. But if we think there's only one way of explaining the past, then that's a bad kind of historian to be. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra eBay Motors is here for the ride. 
With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. So that's gone over some of the, the, the sources that you, yes. that you can test um, as evidence for, yes. for, for the movement of, of uh, uh, Anglo-Saxon peoples into, into what's now England. Um, so, but, so, so, so what, what does that mean? How does, how does, that, how does that take us forward? Because there, there, there is no evidence for the Anglo-Saxon migrations. I mean, I'm not saying they didn't happen. They may well have happened, but we just don't know whether they happened or not. And until we do know, we better assume they didn't happen. Because if you assume they did happen, you have to make a lot of other assumptions. Um, so that then the argument becomes more and more, well, if we accept this and then we accept that and then we accept something else and then, uh, and then the Anglo-Saxons definitely came, then actually you're building quite a shaky argument. So um, I, I think that there's a, a problem with the, across the disciplines with this period, which means we need to reformulate. We've got ourselves into a cul-de-sac we can't go any further because we're going around in circles making up stories about an area that we don't actually have the evidence for, but that we pretend or, no, that's not fair, but that, you know, we, we believe we have the evidence for, we assume we've got the evidence for, we don't actually have it. So how do we go forward? Well, there are going to be all sorts of ways in which scholars decide they're going to take this forward. I have my own, and so I just all I can do is tell you about mine. So my own was that I'd like to preface this by saying that my research is about uh, rights of common, which and which are uh, where people, groups of people, share the exploitation of natural resources. So they share the grazing on a piece of land, or they share the fishing in a certain lake, and there are rules about how much you can take and when you can take it, and making sure that everybody gets a fair share and so on. So that's where my research comes from. Those kinds of rules change very slowly because they involve groups of people. So anybody knows who's gone to any kind of committee meeting, a parish council or such thing, where you want people to make a change, actually getting people, everybody to agree a really dramatic change is quite difficult. Mostly people only agree incremental changes. And so what rights of common persist over a very long period because they're not dependent on one individual's lifetime. Everybody would have to die before the rights of common were extinguished. And everybody has to agree to a change, which makes them very slow. So that's where I come from. So now there are four scholars who come from dis different disciplines who each adopt a very similar viewpoint. So one is the very wonderful French historian called Fernand Prodel, uh, who talks about the long durée change that happens very slowly over long periods of time. And really, my rights of common are that sort of thing. They're institutions which can persist over thousands of years. Um, and the church, for example, is a the, the Roman Catholic Church is an example of an institution of that sort. Um, which has persisted over very nearly 2,000 years. And 
Now, these things have the potential to, to persist. So it's Modell. Then there was a French anthropologist called Pierre Bourdieu, uh, who, in, um, who developed uh, a concept called habitus. It's spelled habitus, but of course in French it so the H, the habitus. So uh, Bourdieu's idea was that all of us in any society are brought up learning things so subtly that we don't even know we've learned them. We learn how to treat our grandparents, we know how to treat our neighbours, we know how to treat the schoolmaster. There are rules about how we behave, and those rules are so unspoken that we don't even know that we know them, and we're unable to discuss them because they're just part of almost, you know, you might say of our psychological DNA. So, for example, when British people go abroad, they get terribly upset because they're used to queuing. Their rule is the first person who arrives at the bus stop gets on the bus first, the second person second, and so on. So the order of getting on the bus is the order in which you turn up at the bus stop. But you can go to very many countries where the rule is once you're at the bus stop, you can get in and there is no order. And each group can get terribly hit up about what they see as a fundamental breach of, of rules that actually isn't a universal rule. It's just a way we've been brought up to think. So, so there was Abitur. So uh, Bourdieu says that those kind, because those structures are so unspoken, that they also change very slowly over long periods of time. And so that your, your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren will all believe more or less the same thing. It might evolve slowly over time, but there will be these very long traditions of unspoken belief. Third person was um, a wonderful woman called Eleanor Erstrom, who was a Nobel Prize winning economist. And uh, she did a lot of work on rights of commons. I've already talked about that. I won't say any more about that. And then the last was um, an, a conservationist called Holling, who developed a, a rather nice model for talking about environmental change. And he says change happens at three levels. So there are very slow changes, take a very long time to happen, which are like my rights of common. There are middle um, Changes that happen at a middling sort of speed. So, for example, climate change happens at that sort of speed. Um, and then there are changes that happen very quickly. So, for example, the great storm of 1987 or something apocalyptic, you know, the plague of 1348 to 50. Um, there are these very rapid moments of change. And uh, Holling's model suggests that very slow changes, the things that we take for granted, tend to contain the impact of middle fast changes and very fast changes, that they ameliorate their effects. So that the, and the very fast changes, some of them will have very long lasting effects, like the Black Death had a very long lasting effect. Others will have a relatively brief effect. So the vast floods across the North Sea in um, the late 1940s and 50s, which have almost disappeared. You can go into you know, any community and you won't see the evidence of them. There is evidence, and that is in the way in which national governments control flooding from the sea. 
but you won't see it on the ground and you won't necessarily see it in the way that people relate to it. It's a fast change in which there has been some impact, but there's no wide long-term impact on society, economy or political structures. So that's really where I come from. That's my, that's my kind of model. And it gives me a lot of comfort to know that historians, anthropologists, economists and conservationists are all thinking in more or less the same sort of way. Holling's model more or less describes Baudel's long durée. It describes Bourdieu's habitus. It describes Östrom's rights of common. So... Um... I, I've got you. So I, so I understand that the, the story that we're getting basically just a gradual change uh, over time as yes. uh, in the in the aftermath of, of the Roman uh, the Roman period. But what about this idea that the Roman like society collapsed? There's this this question that you know in the in the fifth century with the Romans the Romans left a vacuum and that's where the, that's how the the Anglo Saxons come in. They they come to fill that vacuum. You don't you don't see that. No, um, actually, and I was very influenced by a really good book um, by uh, Dr. James Gerard, the University of Newcastle, who wrote a book called The Ruin of Roman Britain, where he looks at what happened. Um, and he suggests that 98% um, of the British economy in 400, actually in prehistory and well into the Middle Ages, uh, was based on agriculture. And that most of it was probably not transacted in coin. Mm -hmm. by barter. And so the removal of Roman administration and the removal of Roman coin may not have had as significant an effect on the British economy as one might have expected. So that to some extent, I think uh, Gerard would see the, the gradual depopulation of Roman towns, which began in the late 4th century before the Romans left, as just part of a trend. And he would, I think... See, there was the see, see the um, the economic productivity, and on top of that, the social structures of Britain as evidence of long-term continuity. The thing is about farming. You see, farming is all about property rights. So, if you've got property rights, that tells you what you can farm, that the, the land you can farm, that's what you own. And if you've got property rights, you need somebody that you can complain to if somebody breaches your property rights. You also have to be able to get on with your neighbours. You have to know the history of your rights. Were they inherited? Did you buy that piece of land? How, how did it come about? So the, but as soon as people are, are, are farming, and of course they were farming across the whole of that period, as soon as people are farming, then they're part of a, a, a system which is relatively stable. I'm not saying there was never any war or never anything horrible, but the, the underlying structures are relatively stable. And so that's why I think that what you're seeing is the slow evolution of late Romano-British communities into the post-Roman period, their adaptation to post-Roman conditions. After all, there wasn't a Roman army to defend them anymore. There weren't Roman administrators taking taxes from them and sending them wherever. So they're adapting to new conditions and then they're also innovating. They're going and buying things from the Anglo-Saxon version of Ikea and taking them home and furnishing their homes with a new form of material culture. That's my that's my thesis. But, you know, it's, it's, just an ex it's just to show that there are alternative ways. That was really, I mean, I don't know what happened in the past. Nobody knows what happened in the past. But if we think there's only one way of explaining the past, then that's a bad kind of historian to be. 
We need to be able to explore a range of explanations to test them against the evidence and then on that basis to decide which of them is the strongest for the position that we're currently in. Just wrapping up, just one, one or two more things. I, I don't quite understand then in this model of, of, uh, of gradual change based on all, all these excellent ideas from, from the academics you cited, how uh, people came to be speaking a different language towards the end of the period from the start. Or or, or is that, again, not, not true? I mean, is, is it possible that they were actually speaking a variant of Old English even, you know, back in, in the Romano-British period? You know, language is a real problem. And um, the linguists the linguists make a certain number of assumptions in their explanations for the origins of Old English. I'm not a linguist, but I can tell what assumptions they're making. So what do they assume? They assume that most people spoke only one language, and that therefore the change from speaking um, Britonic, which is a, a precursor of, of a Celtic language, a precursor of Welsh. But so they say most people spoke Britonic and then turned to speaking English. Yeah. But actually, of course, Bede gives a list of the languages spoken in Britain in 713, and at least five were being speak, spoken. In most parts of the world today, most people are bilingual or multilingual. In the country I grew up in, most people could speak at least three languages when I was growing up, and now there are 12 national languages. So it's not, it's not unusual for people to be, you know, to speak more than one language. So changing, the, the change in the dominant language from one language to another isn't understood. We don't know how it happened. But if you make the assumption, if you assume on the basis of no evidence that everybody spoke Britonic, and we don't actually know what they spoke. You, if you assume that, and then, then, you, you, then you've got to, to explain something which says, well, they all spoke Britonic, and at another date, they're all speaking Anglo, Old English. How did that happen? Then you're looking at a really significant change. But what if they were multi bilingual, multilingual, and Old English you know, came into that mix? So that's one. They also assume that um, the Anglo-Saxons refused to speak anything except Old English. So if you wanted to get along in early medieval England or late antique England, you had to speak Old English, otherwise you were always going to stay at the bottom of the heap. If you wanted to be upward, upwardly mobile and get a, you know, an office with a desk and a chair, you had to be able to speak Old English. But actually, of course, immigrants don't do that. What they do is they pick up the local language by and large, especially um, when it's generally agreed that even if the Anglo-Saxons came, they would have been a small minority in a much larger historic population. Those people aren't going to spend their time in little cliques only speaking Old English like the Amish or, you know, some in inward-looking group. They'd have to learn the, the local languages, whatever they were. Um, a third problem with the linguists is that they assume that the language that one speaks is a sign of one's ethnicity. So you can say one's ethnic identity. It's a marker of one's ethnic identity. That's certainly possible. You know, there are, you know, examples where that happens. Ethnic identity is very difficult 
to define because it's made up of so many, you know, hundreds of different variables. And then on top of that, of course, you know, if you look at the languages, you know, English is the most second most, either the first or the second most commonly spoken language across the world. It's between English and Spanish, isn't it? And yet those people who speak English and Spanish in Holland, 73 or 95 or something percent of people speak English. They don't speak English because we went over there and colonized them. They speak English because they learned it at school. It's whatever their ethnic identity is, speaking English isn't part of it. So the assumption by the, by the linguists that if that, old, that Anglo-Saxons only spoke Old English and the only way you could get along was also by speaking it is a bit dodgy, I think. And the last thing is that the linguists also assume that Old English won as, an ang- as a language because it was the language of leadership. And there's absolutely no evidence for that. I mean, you know, I can go on about that for hours, but there isn't any evidence for it. And so, you know, perhaps we could just leave it there. Um, There's quite an interesting uh, Dutch professor called Peter Schreiber, um, who has a a linguist, uh, who suggests that English emerged um, as a dominant language because it's what he called a killer language. It doesn't expect you to remember too many things. If you learn German or French, you have to remember um, that particular word orders. English is much less fussy about word order. We don't have genders. You know, our nouns aren't generally speaking feminine or, or masculine. But anyway, so that, but he's saying, he suggests that these things make English incredibly malleable, a very flexible language. It's incredibly adaptive. And that is why people spoke it, because it was easy. It was easier than speaking Britonic or late spoken Latin or Pictish or whatever it was that was being spoken in England at the by different communities at the time. They spoke it because it was easy. It was a lingua franca, so to speak, only obviously not franca. (laughs) (laughs) That was Professor Susan Westhazen. The Emergence of the English is out now, published by ARC Humanities Press. And do check out historyextra.com for more on the Anglo-Saxons. Thanks for listening. We'll be back on Thursday with more from the world of history. (laughs) 